Good evening and welcome to No Pressure To Be Funny at the Phoenix in Cavendish Square. Sadly, James O'Brien can't be with us this evening as he's been captured by insurgents from UKIP. And my name is René Zellweger. <laughs> yes, this is how I sound and that's none of evil business either. Doctors are going to get paid £55 for every case of dementia they diagnose. Further proof that not only has the world gone mad, but now you get paid for noticing it. And having introduced a new measure, one enterprising GP has diagnosed the entire cabinet and earned himself 1,200 quid. Oscar Pistorius has been jailed for five years, despite pleas from his defence counsel that South African prisons are too dangerous. Still, if it gets a bit much, you can always lock yourself in the toilet. Uh, in Brighton, a lesbian couple in Sainsbury's were asked to leave for kissing in public by a security guard who was herself gay. No wonder they're losing market share. In Lidl, she'd have joined in. <laughs> and in Poland, a paralysed Bulgarian man has regained use of his legs after pioneering surgery involving transplanting cells from his nasal cavity. Mm, honestly, these people will stop at nothing to try and get into this country, will they? <laughs> He's walking fine, but in cold weather he does sometimes get a runny back. <laughs> Apparently, nasal cells keep replenishing themselves, which may explain why Pete Doherty is still alive. <laughs> the shootings in Ottawa, a serious subject, will appear to confirm that Canada is now home to dangerous extremists, which is a bit like finding out Bagpuss was, in fact, a drugs mule. <laughs> it's one for the kids, is not it? Of course, if the shootings had happened in the US, they could have sent in the Navy SEALs. Don't, can't work in Canada, Navy SEALs. They'd be beaten to death by fishermen. <laughs> And was anybody else, and final note, I so hoped that Mike Reed would get a mobo this week. <laughs> Just so you could say, do the voice now, Mike. Do the voice, Mike. Do the funny voice. In a meeting, it's a great pleasure to welcome a brand new musical guest to No Pressure, a man whose sense of irony is so finely honed, he took a show to the Edinburgh Festival at the same time as appearing in an advert for a credit rating company. Please welcome Johnny Awesome. Guys, thank you very much. This is lovely. Um, what a nice crowd, nice show we're doing here. I just want to um, share with you something I've been writing this week. It's like a, a sort of peace song. It's a bit of a protest song. Uh, I need a little bit of hope with it just to, to get it going in a sort of folky direction. So um, what's your name, sir? Toby, I'm going to give you this. It's so easy. Right? It's a mouth organ. There you go. When I, when I say hit it, just, just give it a whirl. You won't be able to go wrong because it's in C and the, the guitar's going to be playing C. So there's no way you can do it wrong, hopefully, Toby, anyway. But when I say hit it, let's just have a little bit of that. Here we go. This is my peace song I've been writing this week. Okay, hit it, Toby. Like Dylan, isn't he? This is great. Okay, give it a bit more. Work it. Yeah, that's it. Some other notes. That's working. That's good. Okay, here we go. This is my peace song, guys. I hope you enjoy it. It's a work in progress. It goes like this. It doesn't matter. Oh, <laughs> in my own words. Short or tall. Here we go. Matter if you're straight or gay, oh yeah, and it doesn't matter if you're black or white, because we're all gonna get Ebola anyway. So, you know, that's a little work in progress. A little round of applause for Toby there, he nailed that. Johnny Awesome and the man in blue. Whoa. Now, it's time to introduce our panel. Please welcome Barry Castanolia, Chris Coltrane, Ivan Gayton and Samina Zera. <laughs> I've known Barry for 20 years and I've still fucked up his name. <laughs> Castanolioliolia. Castanola. I thought it was going to be James O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> you look more like James O'Brien than I do, actually. You look like a comedy version of James O'Brien. Which is technically what I'm meant to be, so we've got this badly wrong, hasn't we? That's the look I'm going for. Barry Castagnolia is a writer and comedian who has recently appeared on Dom Jolly's Full Britannia. He also presents topical podcast of propaganda, so if he sabotages this, we can't be sure if it's a prank or professional jealousy. Chris Coltrane says here he's allegedly a comedian. His website describes no pressure to be funny as Nick Revel's wonderful live topical panel show, clearly not realising that Alistair Barry writes his intros and is quite petty and spiteful. Samina Zero is a comedian, actress, blues singer. His website mentions No Pressure To Be Funny, but her website doesn't say who No Pressure To Be Funny belongs to. She's immensely talented. 
Ivan Gayton started with Médecins Sans Frontières as a logistician in 2003 in Burundi, Darfur, and the Central African Republic, and later became project coordinator and head of mission. Alistair has wisely decided not to say anything facetious about this. Ladies and gentlemen, the panel. And before we get going, we turn, as usual, to Alistair Barry with The Devil's Advocate. The Devil's Advocate, uh, the Devil's Advocate this week, believes Ebola is probably just something that happens to other people. I should start by saying that I'm not an expert, but then this is Britain, where we positively frown on expertise. Indeed, if you are brought in as an expert, the one thing you can be sure of is you'll be ignored. Just ask David Nutt, who might have thought massive clinical and academic experience working with drugs might have been useful in his role on the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, until he wrote a paper saying things the government didn't like, whereupon he very rapidly became an expert on his P45, a piece of paper the government were much keener on. Now, I may have spent some time labouring under the misapprehension that Ebola was in fact an African country that used to belong to us, but it turns out I was wrong. Not only is it a hideous and often fatal disease with no known cure, it now appears it can be caught by anyone and not just brown people or monkeys in Dustin Hoffman films. <laughs> Mali has just had its first case, although Nigeria has been declared an Ebola-free zone, which is a relief. I received an email about it, so it must be true. The disease continues to spread at an alarming rate. There is now a confirmed case in New York, and if you can catch it there, you can catch it... Anywhere. <laughs> Tragically, the patient, Dr. Craig Spencer, is a colleague of Ivan's at Médecins Sans Frontières, which I add mainly to extend our sympathy, but also to make the rest of the panel feel slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> we <all> be... <laughs> Excellent cough, not sure if it's going to make the podcast. We obviously pass on our heartfelt wishes for a speedy recovery so that he can return to working uh, with Médecins Sans Frontières, or, as the Americans call it, Doctors Without Borders, which is so much less offensive and, well, you know, French. <laughs> Something must be done, and I don't mean Mike Reed writing a song called Ebola and Ivory. We're told competition is a good thing, but up to now, the pharmaceutical giants appear to have been competing with each other to see who could do the least. Luckily, they have now brilliantly spotted a hole in the market for a vaccine for a disease that could wipe out hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people. Personally, I'm not worried. This is Britain. It's not going to happen here. Not when we're screening for the disease at airports. As the symptoms include vomiting, diarrhoea, headaches, dizziness and liver failure, the real challenge is going to be sorting out Ebola patients from British tourists returning from two weeks in Magaluf, <laughs> where, judging from their behaviour on YouTube, Ebola is about the only disease they won't have caught. It's all happening in a foreign country, and we all know that anything that happens over there is bad, especially last-minute EU budget calculations, white slavery and spicy food. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've got a bit of a sore throat coming on. Thank you very much. Uh, can I make a serious plea that if Ivan does actually break out in a sweat, can you please remember to let the comedians out first? because that way at least the first tweets about the outbreak will be amusing. <laughs> now, oh, now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to turn to you, Ivan, um, uh, because obviously <laughs> well, I'm being flippant, Ivan, which is the most responsible way I know to approach a highly dangerous situation, unfortunately. Um, it's the way I went into marriage. It's the way I'm going into Ebola. Um, <laughs> how... You kind of get you kind of get newer to it because we bird flu, swine flu, the tabloids love an epidemic story. Seriously, on a scale of one to ten, how scared should we be about this? Depends what you mean. I mean, personally scared. Yeah, I, it's I, very we can very unlikely we can to get loose in a place where people have access to healthcare. Oh, there you go. Well, as long as you don't mind hundreds of thousands or millions of Africans dying, then it's not going to be a problem. Well, is this? I mean, I'm not the first person to suggest this, but is is it seriously only being taken seriously now that Spanish people and Americans are getting it? We have noticed that there was. Uh, I mean, we've been sort of ringing the alarm bell for uh, for six months now, and uh, only very, very recently, since Spanish and Americans are getting it, we're starting to see some attention from the international community on Ebola. Uh, the moment it threatens. So, so, to whom to whom have you been ringing these alarm bells? Everyone. Oh, really? 
Yeah, no, there was there was a recent article um, that someone else, not us, <laughs> published about the number of times Doctors Without Borders has tried to warn us about Ebola, and it actually sort of had some quotes from people saying, you know, this is alarmist, and it's very irresponsible to uh, to try to frighten people like this. Um, you told out, no. you told the world is it, you told the world health health. I should say that again properly for the podcast. <laughs> you told the World Health Organization in February. Is we that did. True? We did. And what was their response? That we were being alarmist. And how far had the Ebola virus spread at that time? Not all that far, actually. The thing is, uh, there, there's a little trick called exponential growth that, uh, that only bites you after, after it's done a few doubling cycles. So, I mean, the way exponential growth works is, well, I mean, it goes 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256, 512, 1000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's only glasses I don't understand. So when you're, <laughs> well done, yeah. So let's say your doubling period is three weeks, and you've got 10,000 patients now, and the doubling period of the disease is three weeks. Well, in 30 weeks, that's a thousand times what we. Yeah, I mean, you get the picture. Before I include the rest of the, the panel in this, I, this this will sound like a flippant question. It's not meant to be. I'm I'm, I'm not a man of science. I, I I don't look at the moon and wonder if it's got yeah, a left hand thread or not. I'm, yeah, I'm seriously. I'm arts and words and stuff. Uh, in terms of nature and evolution, why do viruses even exist? How? Where do they? How, I, I don't. What I don't. We're always <laughs> we're constantly being told that everything in nature exists for a reason. This seems pretty. Too many people in the world. That's a cause. That's a cause. Too many people in the world. And and nature goes, okay, there's too many. Let's get rid of some. This turns right wing very quickly. No, no. That's not right wing. It's a bit Malthusian. It's a bit Malthusian. Oh, okay. It's it's, it's nature's way of, you know. You mean that in a Gaia, the planet is. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's it's nature's way of keeping balance. No, it's pretty. I'm I'm, I'm with Chris. I think it's a slightly harsh point of view. But they exist for the same reason we do, because they can. Right. (laughs) But what's their raison d'etre, though? What are the tricky little buggers doing? Where does, well, it, where does a virus... Where does it emerge? How does it emerge? How does it start? What is it, what's its evolutionary purpose in life, if you see what I mean? You clearly don't. Well, the same evolutionary purpose as you, which is to make more of you. Oh, OK, fine. Right. I'm, um, I'm how, in, how are you doing on that? In though? general... <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we created another one of me, and then Mrs. Day and I decided, for the sake of the planet, it would probably be safer if we didn't do that again. <laughs> And he turned out to be an evil genius, so I think we were probably right to declare it one. But, but Barry, do you, you know, this is quite interesting. Nigeria is almost like the opening sequence of the, the Simpsons with Nigeria declaring itself Ebola free for a week. Now, do you, do you, are you the sort of person who reads that and thinks, oh, it's fine, I'm safe, I'll go to Nigeria now? Are you the sort of person who is terrified by tabloid stories? I mean, I, I won't be visiting West Africa anytime soon, probably just in, just in case. Um, but, it, I mean, at first, you, you, you hear all these stories as well. And it's like with any big story as well. The, the conspiracy theorists come out and everyone says, oh, this is, uh, uh, you know, this is, this, this is just the, the pharmaceutical companies and this is just Western governments. And you, you hear all these sort of stories. Um, and it seems like you said that the World Health Organization is the same World Health Organization who have said that cases might be up to 10,000 a week very soon. And, and they weren't taking it seriously in, in February. And this is the World Health Organization. There's it, only one as far as I know. There's what? There's only one of them, as far as I know. Right, yeah, yeah. But they are the World Health Organization. You feel like they should be a little bit more over this. We would have liked for them to pay a little more attention when we first rang the alarm bell, yes, indeed. Yeah, that's quite a diplomatic answer there, wasn't it? (laughs) So, uh, Chris, when we find out about these things on the ground in in Africa, um, it it seems that sometimes the West will selectively choose how to deal with it, whether it's financial or not. Should we... Are you the sort of person who thinks, yes, it's morally up to us as human beings to go out and help other human beings or are you a kind of well I would think that but then I am also more to the left of most people when I do think that compassion is a good thing so you know I think that well, yeah absolutely but I think it could be hard because like, you read the, the western media and then you watch Al Jazeera who reminds you that these people are actually human beings in a way that the western media sort of doesn't really it's very weird that level of compassion as you say seems to be missing from the debate somehow we talk about figures and statistics and numbers, but without ever putting a name to any of those people. And it's when you put names to them... If you started printing the names of the people that died, I think people here would start digging deeper in their pockets or giving more practical help. I don't know what practical help we can give to them. Oh, I think the thing about, you know, compassion and about... I mean, if we have that much money to spend on, you know, upgrading Trident, a thing we're never going to use unless we all want to die, it's about prioritising the way in which we spend the money. My taxes, I'm happy to pay taxes, I'm happy to pay more taxes as long as they're going to the right place and healthcare is one of those places and the whole world 
I mean, it's it's very easy to be sort of you know go it, as long as we're okay, but we're not okay. We all live on the same planet, and we're one we're one world. It, uh, how much money does it take to fix this problem, Ivan? Now, it's yeah. not sure that we even can. Oh, right, okay, uh, right. I, again, I told you about doubling periods. Yeah. Another, say there's 10,000 now. Let's say two more doubling periods. Six weeks from now, if, if it stays at about a three-week doubling period, okay, that's 20,000, then it's 40,000. Then there's not the capacity on the planet, given any amount of money, to contain it. Does it not burn itself out? I mean, does it, does, does it not get to a stage where... Or does it just keep... Well, when everybody dies. Holy shit, yeah. I wish so, I hadn't so, asked that question. So, yeah. <laughs> 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 that's the good news, is eventually everyone dies. Um, in, in fact, in, in Guinea, in Gekadu, where people were so afraid of Western healthcare that they actually attacked the centers and they destroyed them, there is actually such a, such a peak that we might actually maybe be looking at sort of the natural curve of it, but that involves an awful lot of the people dying. Afraid, of, afraid of Western healthcare, why? Well, and, th and this uh, it comes back to my real answer to your question of what would it take to stop this, because it's not a question of how do we stop it now, it's a question of why did it happen in the first place? Mm because all of those people don't have access to healthcare. They've never seen it, they don't trust it. Why would they trust it? Because any hospital they go to isn't going to provide them with any care. There are no medicines, there's no trained staff, there's nothing there for them. The world as a whole has not prioritized simple, basic healthcare for poor people, so they don't come for healthcare. They go to traditional healers who at least actually provide them with some compassion, not with any kind of medicine that can deal with an with a infectious, contagious outbreak. So if there had been health care for all those poor people, and guess what? There's lots of poor people outside of West Africa who also don't have that access to health care. Now, if we fixed that, then we wouldn't have these anymore. As long as we decide that, you know, that there's an entire continent worth, let's say you know, half a billion people who can just go ahead and suffer from any disease they like and it's none of our business, guess what? These things are going to keep coming back. So the, so the question is, not how do we stop this epidemic. At this point, it looks like all the stops have been pulled out and maybe we'll get it and maybe we won't. Um, but if we don't want this to happen, then we're gonna have to actually rethink whether or not poor people should have primary health care. Uh, Samina, I need to get this on a level that my brain can actually cope with. And I believe you've got an interesting spunk-related anecdote. <laughs> it's not an anecdote. Oh. It was a question that I was going to ask Ivan. And I was going to say to Ivan, I will promise you a ride on my donkey if you can um, tell me, if you can confirm for me that the um, Ebola virus remains um, infectious in sperm for up to seven weeks after the person who, whose sperm it is has been cured. Does that make sense? Okay, now, well, also, how do they know that? Yeah, now, now th that, that's actually the interesting thing, is how they know that. Because, indeed, you know, for some Ebola patients in one of the last outbreaks, they measured all of their bodily fluids for some time after, after they, they had recovered. And they actually asked for a sampling of bodily fluids. They did not, in fact, ask for sperm. But one of them actually just volunteered and provided some <laughs> sperm samples anyway. As you do. <laughs> As you do. So yeah, while we're at it, here's... Uh, I'm only, thank you. And it turns out... Well, to, be, well, to be fair... Be specific. Chris, be specific. Well, no, to be fair, Chris, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm beyond so lot. I can only count two. Saliva, urine, that's blood. free. Oh, blood. Does that count? It's the fluid. Well, as a matter, yeah, well, and this is the terrible thing about Ebola. Sweat, oh. urine, feces, earwax. Well, I don't know. Uh, at least not as far as I know. But yeah, it, you, you can get it's it from someone's sweat. It's not. it's not. Indeed, absolutely. Yeah, so, so it's, it's not transmitted aerosol. But it's transmitted by bodily fluids. Can I point out, I'm not that immature, by the way, because I'll just let an aerosol joke go by. <laughs> Seriously, and that man there just saying it can also be spread by tears has actually physically depressed me much more than the hangover I already had. Um, so I, th I think I, I, I didn't think there was going to be any disagreement with us on this, uh, and I, I'm correct. But it is slightly depressing that even in America now, there seems to be a degree of panic. The bowling alley that your colleague went to is now tumbleweed blowing through. What? What are, what are the actual facts about how you can get it and how you can prevent it? Because from what you're saying, tragically, it sounds like it's both preventable and treatable if you get it early enough. Is that right? No, not quite. It's not curable. There is no cure for Ebola. What ha what the thing is, if you don't have a really heavy infection, if you don't get a really big viral load in the first place, then in general, the infection doesn't progress so, so quickly and your body has time to, to mount an immune response. Um, but the, the, the mode of infection really is, 
It's bodily fluids of someone who is symptomatic. This is the key, and this is what the, 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 the bowling patrons in the United States haven't figured out. That doctor was not feverish or symptomatic when he went bowling, therefore he was not if, uh, um, infectious. By the time an extremely sensitive test, right of your blood, where there's the highest viral load, can even barely detect Ebola, your body will have detected it by a fever quite a long time before. So before you've had any fever, you're simply not infectious. The real infection comes from dead bodies. And since Ebola kills, well, historically up to 90% of the people who get it, now we're looking at sort of 60% of people dying outside of the health centers and 50 inside. So we're not exactly happy with the level of care we're able to provide people. But once they're dead, that's when it really spreads. So had he died in the bowling alley or perhaps left some bodily fluids on the bowling ball that were still liquid by the time somebody else grabbed it and stuck it in their mouth. It'd sure, have be, but he... It'd have to be really into bowling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so this, this whole idea that you're, that you're going to, you know, grab people at the airport and quarantine them for 21 days because they've been to West Africa, I suppose it might be a useful political move, but there's no basis in that, in, in science for that. It right. makes no sense whatsoever to quarantine people because they've been somewhere where there's Ebola. If you don't have symptoms, you are not infectious. End of story. I hesitate to ask this question because I suspect I know what the answer is already. Is it inevitable that it will get to Britain? Well, oh, that's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy with well. Just, f just finally, Chris, because you, you've already, you've already told us uh, people who don't know you before that you, you know your policies are, are off the left. It, do it does seem, though, sometimes. China, for example, Russia, for example, don't tend to get involved in humanitarian efforts like this. Despite the fact that we are a post-imperialist country, we do, Britain does tend to help, either financially or practically. Is there an, an element of pride in that, or do you simply feel that that's part of the colonial legacy that we should be bearing? Um, I just want to check, when you mentioned Russia and China... No, no, I'm not assuming... I'm not, no, I'm, I'm not, I didn't mean... As <laughs> that's I, all right. As I said that, I didn't mean to make that connection. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was more the fact that we get involved more than those countries do, not implying that it The Chinese army has already opened an Ebola center in West Africa. Has it? They have. If you're listening, China, I take that back. <laughs> Cuba, hasn't Cuba done quite a lot as well? Haven't they sent lots of doctors? They have sent people, yeah, but uh, the Chinese have actually opened a center. Oh, that's really And they're actually staffing it with medical staff. So is it's there... It's pretty small, and they're still struggling, but they've done it. Would they not be the same level of mistrust towards Chinese medicine that would be towards Western medicine? Then? I don't mean Chinese medicine per se. Actually, uh, that, that, that I might actually go over better, in fact. Oh, really? Yeah, well, there's there's the downside is there's going to be a lot of tigers losing their penis. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. And that was the laugh I was looking for to get out of this subject. <laughs> uh, so, yes, that's... Um, I don't can know I if tigers can get it. brave we are to start with Ebola? Like, that, that was our warm-up topic for yeah. this comedy night. Yeah, that yeah. is bold. You haven't seen the rest of the topics, have you? <laughs> <laughs> That's the light-hearted one. Oh, my goodness. Well, we had to deal with... I mean, there was some... I, 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 I only come into this as an irregular host, but I know Nick and Alistair and James spoke at length about this and, and thought there's no, there's no way out of it. We have to discuss it, and especially that's with, with somebody who's an expert in it. It seemed remiss not to. So if anybody thought it was inappropriate to discuss that first, I do apologise, but it was after a long discussion that that was decided it was the case by... Uh, a man I'm going to introduce now to do his monologue, Mr. Nick Revel. Um, I don't know if you saw the photograph this week that went viral of the, uh, the migrants trying to climb over the fence into the golf course in Melilla. If you didn't, Melilla is a, an enclave, a Spanish enclave in Morocco. And if African migrants can get in there, they're in Europe, and they can start to try and build a new life. Uh, and it was an amazing photograph. In the foreground, you had a couple of golfers on this green, lush golf course on the edge of the Sahara. Who knew they had water resources so plentiful in the desert that they could build a golf course? Anyway, so you've got these, you've got these golfers playing golf, and then on this razor wire fence, you've got a dozen or so migrants perched on the fence waiting for an opportunity to try and get past the police you couldn't see in the photo, and try and get in, into Europe and, as I say, start a new life. And it, it went viral because it, it's a very powerful, eloquent symbol, I think, of the way that currently on this planet we have at least two completely or almost completely separate worlds 
operating. And I, I thought that's a really good subject for the monologue. But I really was struggling to, to find a way in to, to some kind of angle. And the other days, usually if I'm stuck, I go for a walk and I'm going to the supermarket. And, uh, and when I get to the supermarket, they've rearranged the shelves. And uh, this, I've got to tell you, always gives me uh, a wave of existential anxiety, I would say. Because, you know, the way I look at it is when you live in a universe where God no longer exists, you need some substitute system of fixed reference points to protect you from an eternal sense of chaos. And for me, one of those fixed points is knowing exactly where the coffee is in Waitrose. And I mean, it's not as if it's all plain sailing once you actually get to the coffee section. It's another set of choices. Which good deed coffee should I buy this week? Should it be fair trade, fair trade organic, organic and water aid, bird friendly, orangutan friendly? I can be there for 20, 30 minutes trying to work out what is the right choice. And, you know, it just shows that freedom is tough because when you're free, you have choices all the time. And when things are not in the right place, you have disorder and discontent. And then bingo. Thought, yes, that's how to interpret that golf course photograph. The golfers on the fairway, the poor migrants on the wire. How would I feel in their position? You go out for a nice relaxing game of golf and suddenly there's a bunch of ragamuffin desperados hanging off the fence, distracting you from your approach shot. I mean, what's the world coming to when you can't play a four iron from the middle of a fairway without getting guilt tripped? Coffee on shelves, desperate poor people on razor wire. It's all part of the same thing. All the problems we have in this world come down to things not being in their place and people demanding and thinking about change. That notion is clearly futile and simply upsetting and leads to nothing but trouble. For centuries, I've got to tell you, we've been misled by dreams of social justice and democracy and change, by foreigners mostly, uh, the ancient Greeks, Jesus, Karl Marx, loads of French people, <laughs> all of them per perpetrating a false consciousness, stirring up trouble by suggesting a better world is possible. I mean, I've fallen foul of this illusion. I've been losing sleep. Very recently, getting angry that the UK economy is apparently growing and yet none of us is seeing any of the extra wealth. But this golf photo has helped me th see things clearly. Like golf, wealth is for most of us a spectator sport. We're not meant to join in. These massive differences in wealth across the planet, the way the wealth gap is increasing, troublemakers might try and tell you we should try and change it. But in fact, it's how things are meant to be. Because if it was meant to be different, if we were meant to live in a world with fairer distribution of wealth and resources, surely we'd have made it happen by now because we are many, they are few, and, that, and yet they continue to increase their power. On the other hand, if we just accept injustice, accept the way things are, the world would be a much calmer, more peaceful place. Politicians could be honest because they wouldn't need our vote. Old me would have been listening to David Cameron at the conference saying, how dare anyone doubt my commitment to the National Health Service? Old me would have said to him, well, Dave, because I read the fucking papers. New me says, you know best, Dave. Rulings in your blood. I've got to confess, uh, saying that out loud, it's really hard to keep up the mask of irony that I'm conducting <laughs> through this monologue. I mean, just can't the poor of the third world simply not recognise that they play a vital role simply by living in poverty and showing all of us in the West that for all our problems there are many people worse off than we are? Third world people, we salute you for your suffering makes us feel better about ourselves and makes comic relief possible. 
And it's not as if we get nothing out of the deal by being not part of the wealth-sharing process. We get to follow the lives of the rich and famous in celebrity magazines, knowing our zero-hours contracts, minimum-wage jobs, student loans and reduced pensions make such glamorous lifestyles possible. We can drink whiskey from a blue bottle endorsed by an iconic celebrity ex-footballer, wear training shoes designed by rap stars, develop eating disorders, trying to attain impossible media-generated body images. We can name our children after members of the royal family or the Kardashians and dream that one day they'll create a multi-million pound video cast talking about lip gloss or win Britain's Got Talent, become a star and be perved on at charity dinners in Park Lane by tax-dodging pieces of shit like Philip Green. Sorry, let's the mask slip again there. Ladies and gentlemen, what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, what I'm saying, all I want you to do in the interests of global peace and harmony and individual contentment, I want you to just know your place, worship the 1%, be grateful for the crumbs from their table and ask yourselves, hand on heart, if you really can't say, that's enough. Thank you. The thing with golf as well, it's such a game for wankers. (laughs) Uh, You just know they already will have a rule about what to do if your ball hits an economic migrant. (laughs) Uh, That'll be a free drop, I imagine, won't it? Yes, it will do. Yeah, ricochet, yes. A movable obstruction, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's... Not only do I applaud the way your, your gnomic timing was wonderful there. That was fantastic. With that beard, it's a movable obstruction. That's lovely. It's like Gandalf has just told me a golf rule. <laughs> I'm really pleased about that. Chris, your, your website says you're fighting the Tories with, with punchlines. Who's winning? Me. Good. <laughs> um, Occupy, this, uh, Occupy this week, Chris. I know not one of us here disagrees with why they're doing it. Where's the publicity? Where's the fuss? Where's the anger? Well, a lot of people said that were at the uh, original Occupy as well, back down at the um, London Stock Exchange. One of the big criticisms of it was, yeah, but what do you actually believe? You're here occupying, what do you believe? It turns out they actually did have a very concrete set of beliefs that they'd written and that the media just didn't report on. Now, you know, there might be various reasons for that. You know, maybe it's just not an interesting enough story to report on those sorts of things. But it is often the case with these sort of things that the people who are occupying do actually have a lot of definite beliefs but because they're not reported people just think they're just there to sit around a bit which isn't necessarily fair um there's a lot of the same people i haven't actually been down to occupy democracy which is the one outside parliament square i've not been there but i know a lot of the people involved in that were people who were involved in the occupy the london stock exchange and so i imagine the uh, the beliefs are broadly the same unless they've just changed their minds overnight i imagine it's I, the same I, beliefs. I hate this i still have I've got a residual fear of physically getting involved because I got I the worst kicking I ever got in my life during the Stop the City demonstration late in the 80s. Really? And I've still... There were two policewomen uh, did a classic good cop, bad cop. I, was, I can't remember. I was in front of a bank sitting down and a policewoman stuck two fingers up at me. So I thought she was doing in a kind of Henry V defiant gesture. But it was to show me her two really long fingernails. Because what she did was come from behind me, stick the two fingers up my nose and start dragging me backwards. Wow. Then, unfortunately, the other one came along, bad cop. (laughs) (laughs) And I still still admire the way she did it, because she she managed to... She beat the length of one leg with a truncheon while kicking the fuck out of the other leg with her. So I'm still scared of that. I mean, I still... I want to get involved so much. You've had experience, Barry, in in all sorts of guises of direct action and, and protest, but I feel ashamed of the fact that I'm scared to do anything. I, mean, I, I give money, I do benefits, but physically, I'm, st- I'm scared to get involved. Yeah, I, I, got, I think one of the first marches, I went on one of the, uh, the miners' marches um, and uh, got, got punched in the, in the face. Um, uh, and it, it sometimes depends on bad luck where you, you know, wh- which part you're with. And we, we were stupid. We were in a massive group and the police uh, uh, and the demonstrators go, OK, everyone link arms, link arms and move towards the police. And as you're getting towards the police in lines, rather than everyone just moving together as, as a mass, everyone's moving in these single lines, the police were just punching people in the head and then slipping them out the back and waiting for the next line to come along and then dispersing <laughs> them. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've done proper... And, and also, uh, I, I did a, a show... As we played these characters. Uh, it was a thing called Cyderdelic um, uh, a few years ago, and we went on quite a few demonstrations. And what Chris is saying there about the, the media not wanting to pick up on, on actual points... Um, we were um, we were these sort of played these three 
slightly naive eco-warrior rave DJs from Devon. Um, and we had like a 10-point manifesto, we had our own party. Um, and one of the points, we, had, we, had, we went to the, uh, the May Day protest in 2001, and we had this nine-meter-long banner uh, that said, overthrow capitalism and replace it with something nicer. Right? <laughs> and all the photographers were just all in front of us, and it ended up being like the f in the mail, it was on left-wing websites, on right-wing websites, and they just sort of picked up on that, but you could tell the mail were, were doing it in a really nasty, like, oh, look at these clueless idiots, look at them here. Um, which the characters were, but obviously they were they were quite happy to, to take us as as, as real. But um, but yeah, no, I, I got held at, at Oxford Circus um, mm. at that May Day for, for like seven hours. I mean, it was completely it was unlawful imprisonment. So, I mean, I mean, you've travelled quite extensively, Samina. You've spoken to activists all over the world. Do you sense that there isn't an appetite for anger anymore in Britain, the same the way there was perhaps in the er the early to mid eighties when they? No, I don't agree with that at all. One of the most inspiring moments I had was years ago. I went to an anti-war march before we invaded Iraq. And they'd bust a load of people from Manchester, and there was this really old woman on the bus. She must have been, like, 92. And she got on. I was like, why are you here? You're, you know, like, I think you've done your bit. You don't need to be... And she was like, no, I was at the Miners' March. I was at Greenham Common. I'm going to be marching till the day... You've got to tell these people I'm going to be marching till the day I die. And I was like, you're 92. That could be today. <laughs> Just get on the bus and go home. But it was incredibly inspiring. And I think... I mean, I think, yes, you had a bad experience, whatever. There's something amazing about... Not just the fact that, you know, for all those moments that you're talking to some wanker who's going on about bleeding heart liberals, like having a heart is an affliction, like syphilis. For those moments when you have to, and you, you know, you're, because I'm a pacifist and my face is trying to go, okay, tell me your point of view, let me see what you're thinking, let me, and my head is going, I hate you, I hope somebody ties a rope to your ankle and ties the other end to, the, to their car and drives at 60 miles an hour up the M60. For all those moments, you need those moments of solidarity to go, no, actually, we can do this. And it does make a difference. It might not make the seismic difference immediately that you want it to, but it does make a difference. We would have been nuclear bombing Iran by now if there hadn't been such a big protests about Iraq, mm. for example. They um, would have gone I'm, straight and Also, since they cobbled the M60, that is the best way to punish yeah. someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, actually, I agree. I'm actually very impressed that you've worked out which motorway it's going to be. <laughs> I, th one of the most inspiring... <laughs> you... you it's true. We need to end this part and move on. Uh, bless you. We, um, you meet inspiration in the most bizarre places. And I met. I was travelling for purposes of a football program on a coach with some whole city away fans, and there was a woman. It's probably a little bit younger than your woman, but she was in her eighties, and she had uh, a tiger, a whole city tiger, tattooed on her wrist. And I said, "Why have you waited so long to get a tattoo on your wrist?" And she said, "Because I only found out last week that my husband doesn't like them." <laughs> <laughs> Please welcome back the talents of Mr. Johnny Awesome. This is my song um, about the, uh, the news story that UKIP were going to release a song written by Mike Reed uh, that he sung in a Caribbean accent. And um, it goes like this. Here we go. Nigel addressed his UKIP throng and said, I want us to release a song. A trendy singer is what we need. The guy I've chosen is called Mike Reed. And the party said, oh no, not he. He has not been popular since 83. No ifs, no buts. Mike Reed is as bonkers as coconuts. Now, Nigel looked glum to hear this snub and said, I think it's time for me to hit the pub. After a pint and a lucky strike, he asked the barman what he thought of Mike. And the barman said, oh no, not he. Even on the telly, he was not funny. Your plan is shite. Mike Reed is so useless, he's been bankrupt twice. Everybody! basically withdrawn that song he realized that he got it wrong he's taken up a more popular cause to free oscar pistorius well done you're great singers well done
awesome. And keep the applause going and welcome back our panel, Samina Zera, Ivan Gayton, Chris Coltrane and Barry Castagnola. Well, we have a question here, uh, Ivan. This question is addressed to you. Sorry to... God, you look like Boris Johnson when you did that. <laughs> Jesus, I, I apologise for... Thank you. I had, a, geez, I had a terrible flashback of the only time I ever met him. Jesus. Uh, Ivan, this is a... <laughs> somebody in the audience can't let it... Other than the Ebola outbreak, uh, is there anything else that the WHO have ignored when you've told them? Is <laughs> 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 it quite a worrying thought that they're just going, nah, not really... Are you sure? MSF? Really? Not doing the furniture anymore? All right, come on. Right. Is there anything else we're not knowing? We're not being told? Well, I, I'm Darius. It's just a comedy show. I mean, this is going to be awful. I mean, 3,000 No children. pressure yeah. to be funny. But it's just... It's just I, 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 right. I, I think what the discussion is, because I, I discussed this with some people in the audience, they're actually genuinely shocked that the World Health Organization ignored your advice that this was going on. So I think it's a fair question to say, is there anything else... That they're ignored. Yeah. Are they prone to that? Of. Well, I, I'm going to answer this seriously here because 3,000 children die every day from malaria, mm. which is absolutely, utterly, completely, and totally preventable. It's totally unnecessary. And in a sense, I mean, that's just an example of so many other things, so many other diseases, and so many other things which which could, could easily, easily fix. And at some level, we've made a decision as a human race that we're going to leave a couple of billion people without any kind of health care whatsoever, thinking, yeah, let's just leave a nice, great, big, you know, uh, sort of melting pot for any kind of pathogen to go ahead and multiply and, and adapt. It's never going to come around and bite us. Mm. Actually, it might. Mm. So in a sense, we kind of have a choice as a human race. We either provide everyone with just basic health care or we don't, and we try to seal them off. Which one do you think is going to work better? Chris, you... you yeah, I think it's the one that's going to involve statistic. a lot of rich people on yachts. I think it's going to be that one. That's the one that is, you, is best. You've, I was remiss because you've got a remarkable statistic about the, the, fun, oh, the, gener yeah. the generosity of people or not in this. You know how we had so much fun talking about Ebola in the first half? Well, have I got a tree for you? It's going to be good. <laughs> um, this is amazing. So <laughs> Spain uh, has donated £330,000 to fight Ebola. IKEA has donated 4.1 million pounds to fighting IKEA, which is very charitable of them. But, sorry, you said fighting IKEA, which I would be. Totally that would be amazing. Yeah, that, that would be they great. are that determined to sabotage their own. <laughs> they have got unlimited resources to defeat themselves. IKEA. They were, IKEA. Shouting. On top of that, have also spent 4.1 million pounds to fight Ebola, which is. Brilliant, because that's really charitable, right? But also, why? What are you up to? Why would you? I don't trust that they're too big. Why would anyone spend <laughs> £4.1 million? That's too nice. Are they worried that Ebola is going to spread through flat-packed MDF? I just don't understand why they would do that. So that's such a symptom of British. I mean, A, it would be nice if they sent the money, but you couldn't find the Allen key. That would be frustrating. <laughs> right. But that's such a British attitude. That's like you too. Don't give me something for nothing. Just mistrusting IKEA. Now, what are they up to? Yeah. They could just be Tax generous. Well, it could be generous philanthropy. Oh, yeah, it could yeah. be that. Could be philanthropy. Could be that. Could That's be another that. similarity they have but whatever, you, then, but, Well, whatever the reason, they've still got £4.5 million that wasn't there before. So, in a sense, maybe, maybe it's that cynicism that doesn't help things. I like either, the idea that they've got the cure for Ebola, but you have to build it yourself first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's in Swedish. You've got to translate <laughs> it. And it, they'd give it a name like Billy Ebola, wouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. I'd rather, have a I'd rather have a bowler than go to Ikea. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. I, I'm, I'm going to challenge you on that. <laughs> right. I'd, I'd, right. I'm like you, I'm like most men. We've all, we've all got male riffs in us about being dragged around Ikea, but I, I, I'm not even going to give it second thought. I'd rather be dragged around Ikea. From what I've heard about Ebola, I'm not even, that's not going to be an argument. Yeah, no. I'm not going to say to Mrs. Day, I'd rather have Ebola. I'm going to Ikea. No, I'll, yeah, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm honest, I'd rather go to Ikea, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't mind having, I'd have a cold if you offered me a cold <laughs> I wouldn't go like it, but not Ebola well, what, under what circumstances are you expecting to have this choice <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point from an expert as well it's, it's very, do you, do you, I, I, I just one more question before we get on in terms of um, the WHO or MSF the people you work for do you monitor changes of governments around the world and 
knowing that some governments will be more cooperative than others in terms of finance, do you follow elections? Do you think, oh, Christ, that party's one that's going to be harder to work with them in a particular area? Hmm. We, we do, we do. I mean, okay, again, I have to answer seriously. I'm really yeah, I'm I want you to, this. seriously. Okay, so, so, so we, we have a principle of neutrality, which is to say w politics is not our business. We're not supposed to get involved in politics. But we actually do have to live in the world, and we have to function in the world, so we have to understand it. If we don't know, for, I, and, and you talk about, is it going to be more difficult to operate here because some government is one? I mean, quite often when a certain government comes to power in a given place, what their plan is is to actually deliberately deny health care, if not actually massacre people in a given area of the country. Uh, so so it's, it's quite routine for us to be dealing with... Um, to dealing with populations that we're trying to help, whose government would actually rather they be dead. Um, so in this case, yeah, it behooves us to actually understand um, the political situation in a given country while still maintaining our ability to, to not pretend, but actually genuinely be neutral about it. So there's, there's this very tricky line that we have to walk about. We're neutral, which doesn't mean that we don't speak out about an atrocity, which doesn't mean that, we're, that we don't have an opinion, it simply means that it is not our business. There's kind of a, there's kind of a, a non-overlapping magisteria thing or something where mm. we're allowed to know about politics and understand about politics but not actually get involved. Do you know, do you know I mean, I'd say for meeting you tonight, I don't know whether I'm more sad about what you've told me about the world or more delighted that there are people like you in it. I think you deserve... Um, Nick and Alistair will be at the bar game. That's a rare moment of sincerity. But I do mean that. I, I do, and I can fake sincerity when I want to. But I do. <laughs> I, I, but I do genuinely. I do genuinely mean that. I, I, uh, thank you. Um, now, the last one is from Mitch. And uh, did, did Mitch just go? Uh oh. Where's Mitch? Have I pronounced? Was it Mick? Is it you? It's about. Austin. Oh, okay, right. Uh, this is, <laughs> this is, a, this is a, I think this is a very funny way of starting a series of Roses are red, violets are glorious. Don't try to surprise Oscar Pistorius. <laughs> is five years too little for killing your girlfriend? Well, yeah, yes, is my answer. But. I, think, I, I think, so there's a, there's a thing surrounding this, and um, one of the things is that this kind of violence against women, he's a man who is known for being violent. Um, this kind of violence against women is endemic all over the world, we know that. There's a 26-year-old woman who's just been hanged in Iran for defending herself against a rapist. There is a woman whose name I have here, Marissa Alexander, in um, America. She got 20 years for firing a warning shot at her violent husband who was coming to hurt her. In f I think it's in like 42 states in, the, in America, you have to pay for your own rape kit. If you get raped and go to hospital, you have to pay for your rape kit. If you can't pay for it, they won't do it. So this kind of... In this climate and in this kind of thing that's happening, when you then have somebody like that who, who does something, I think, it's, I think it's a lenient sentence. And I think the reason he's got the lenient sentence is because he's a white man in South Africa. And I think he's got the... Le because I can tell you if he was black, they would have thrown away the key like before the fucking tr trial even happened. And, um, and also because he's a, he's a celebrity, he's an athlete. And he's a celebrity and, he, and celebrities get away with things that other people don't get away with. Well, it, it kind of brings us to, to Chet Evans as well, who we need to discuss because uh, it, his response has been unequivocal. He's not shown any remorse because he denies doing it. But is there a part of anybody who feels that, however heinous the offence, he has done his time and should be able, should be rehabilitated? <laughs> <laughs> I, d I, d I, gen I generally don't. I think because <laughs> it did kind of end up. Yeah, everyone did look at you. I, d I generally think the, the th I do. I do some football. I do some football broadcasting, and the view in football is from a lot of people that he's done his time. Blah blah blah. The attitude to women in football is mostly unacceptable from a lot of people. But my view is he shouldn't be allowed to play football again because with playing football comes an awful amount of privileges. They get a fantastic <laughs> lifestyle through playing football. And the downside of that is whether or not they want to be role models, they are role models. And if somebody does something like that, they can't be allowed to play football again. There'll be 5,000 women in, this, in, the, in the football, wherever he goes. There'll be kids who are watching the convicted rapists play football. And football clubs, I know for a fact, Stoke City, for example, they're fantastic, well-man. They set up this well-man clinic because they knew that people, men in, in Stoke, weren't going to the doctors. There's a huge rate of obesity. 
and heart attack risk in Stoke. Men in Stoke weren't going to the doctors, they knew this. They set up a well-manned clinic. The rate of heart attacks in the Stoke area has gone down by about 18% because men will go to a football club. They will take advice from a football club. They, they, kids adore footballers in football clubs. You can't let somebody like that back into... In, especially with the, the lack of remorse. And, but then there is the Liberal part of me that feels... Why, why do we is, do Yeah, OK, there's lack of remorse. And if at some point his, um, his, he appeals it and it's overturned, that's great. At the moment, though, he is a convicted rapist. Mm. So... And I think there is a context to it. You know, 85,000 women are raped in England and Wales a year. Um, yeah, and you're right that these are people who are looked up to. Also, isn't it, I, I don't know if this is, I, I don't know how much this will be, but he will be on the sex offenders register. Mm. And part of that will be that he's not allowed to be within a certain distance of young women. So does that mean they're going to clear the stands of women, women supporters? Is he, you know, are they not allowed to come and watch football anymore? So, you know, you weigh it up. I don't know. What do you think, boys? It, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting. I, I didn't know a whole lot about the case. I mean, I, I sort of knew roughly what had happened. And, um, uh, and the way it was re reported this week, I, I didn't realise that he was still protesting his innocence. Because I, I, um, I was thinking how unbelievable that this guy would make a, a statement on his own website and not apologise to the victim before realising that he, he utterly, utterly denies it and obviously they're, they're, they're going, going for appeal. Um, but... With football as well, it, it's amazing. There was a thing with Sheffield United supporters recently where uh, they're chanting his name at games, mm. and that just, at this stage, just seems disgusting. Uh, and then, obviously, we had the Luis Suarez uh, uh, stuff last year, you know, where, where, where t three times now he's, he's bitten another player. I mean, <laughs> three times. Um, yet still, he, he goes on a, on, a, on a huge, what, 50, 60 million pound transfer to, to Barcelona, one of the most glamorous uh, and amazing clubs in the world. So it, it seems like sometimes different rules apply to, uh, to football and, and, and celebrities, as we say, with, 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 with the Pistorius case. I mean, it, it, that, that, again, you, you, you presume, what, because there's no jury, that the, the judge bought his story. Do you know what I mean? The judge, I'm sure we, we've all got our own opinions on it, but the, the, the judge bought the story that he, he thought there was a burglar in his bathroom stealing his Listerine or whatever was going on. You know, it's, 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 it's different rules. If someone's a, a national hero or they're a, a sports person or a celebrity, then... And it's like when the Steubenville rape happened, I don't know how many people followed that, but it was... I was horrified because Serena Williams, who, you know, the Williams sisters, great, fantastic tennis icons, amazing, and she did an interview where she said... And they were all footballers. There were these young footballers in the... whatever, in the school or college, and they'd raped this girl. They'd filmed it. They'd put it all over Twitter, whatever. And it was anonymous, had hacked into it, and that's why it was taken to court. And, and she made a statement that said, oh, these poor boys, you know, their lives are being ruined for this, uh, these wonderful athletic lives that they're going to have are being ruined for this one little mistake. And wasn't that girl drunk anyway? And you just go, what, what is wrong with people? Mm. What do you have to do to, to understand how heinous I mean, that this is, is it's the like narrative, isn't it? That, that is the narrative. Like the, the narrative is that oh, the, these poor boys, oh, their life's ruined now. Oh, what? Are they? As soon when the conversation is not all oh, these poor boys, how is their life going to be? When the conversation changed to actually talking about the victims, then maybe we'll actually start to get yeah. some progress here. Well, and that is a conversation that needs to happen across the board. And the, and the irony is, with that, the, the poor girl in the Chet Evans case, who's now had to change her name for yeah. a second time, is that the one thing Chet Evans probably never knew about on the night was her fucking name. I imagine, because you know, you meet footballers like that, young men who are from the age of 12, 14, told that they're brilliant, told that they're heroes, surrounded by hangers-on. You just know that he's done that. And my friend, the lawyer, would tell me that I can't say this without proof, but you just know he's done that weekend after weekend, and this is the first time that he's been caught. And, it's, it's, and the, the irony of what you say, Barry, about the Sheffield United supporters, the ones who are singing, he does what he wants, etc., is that the Football League have said they can take sanctions against the supporters, and they will, but they can't step in either way about his future. And they're not even going to make any sort of statement about it. And the fact is they're missing a trick because this is a way, as I've mentioned, football clubs, people take their football clubs so seriously. If, if every football club now started a campaign about domestic abuse, use this as a, as a reason to start a campaign about domestic abuse, it would really, really help. But they won't. They won't do that because as they, he, he's, you know, he denies that he did it. And also, let you know what dressing room culture is like. They're not going to be vilifying him. Most of the other young men aren't going to be saying to him, your behaviour was unacceptable. And that's a sad fact of the world. It's, it's, a, it's a stupid... I love football. I'm obsessed with it. But at times, it's a stupid macho village. 
It's simple. That's what it is. What? What? Sorry, I was going to say. What? 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 What happens though if, uh, just legally, if on appeal, I don't know enough about uh, uh, the, the, the case. I wasn't there at court or anything else. What happens? Because he's still protesting his innocence. They're saying that they're going to appeal. He's showing no remorse because he's saying that it's a miscarriage of justice, and that's what other people are saying. I'm just, I'm just saying, no. what happens if it's overturned on appeal? Um, because from the reading I did, when I knew this was coming up uh, uh, or might come up uh, in, in tonight's show, um, was that the, the guy that was with him? They both had sex with the girl. Now, if if it was getting too technical about it all, but if if it was um, that he was done for rape because she was too drunk to consent. Mm. I don't, I don't know enough about the case, but why wasn't the other guy done? I don't understand. What happens if it gets turned over on appeal? Then, 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 then what situation are we in then? You know, it's, it's I'm, only, I'm, only, know. I'm only a fully qualified, I'm only a fully qualified pub lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> if it gets overturned, fine. That's great. He, you know, there'll be an apology, there'll be reparation, there'll be whatever. But at the moment, he is a convicted rapist. Yeah. If they had given him a proper sentence for rape, it would have been 10 years before he was out, and it would have been a moot point because his football playing days would have been over. I think they should have the Pink Sari Brigade in this country. Do, do you know the Pink Sari Brigade? So in India, there's these women in Bihar, right? And they have decided because, you know, women in India, like women everywhere in the world, are treated like shit quite often, by, especially by the authorities, when they complain. So the, there's a, this group of women, and they wear pink saris, like bright pink magenta saris, and they carry, like, huge sticks... And when women are uh, hard done by by husbands or whatever, they go to the house of the person and they call the man out and they go, right, if you don't behave yourself, we are going to beat you up. And if the man shows, they, they beat them up. Like, they beat <laughs> them up. And, you know, there's a part of me that's a pacifist and I don't like violence, but there's a part of me that goes, you go. Because well, when government doesn't work, you get vigilantes. But, that's but what happens. There's a part of me saying, I hope they've got proof before they do it, though. Oh, yeah. Of course they've got bruising. Right. I was in Orissa. Okay, I'm going to tell you this last story. But I was in Orissa. I was doing some work for Smile there. And there was this uh, horrific thing that used to happen. It was the men very often would beat the women, right? Mm. And I'm just there doing a small project of building, a, uh, protesting a dam or whatever it is. And I can't really say anything. But then the, the men would come home at night. They'd be quite drunk. The women would gather around the well of a morning. And they would go, oh, your husband, uh, he couldn't hurt a fly. Look at him. Look, this is a bruise from a real man. And I'm going, what the... But then... The men would come home quite drunk at night and the, they'd go to sleep, they'd fall over, whatever. And the women would go to town with like stainless steel utensils, cast iron pots and pans. I mean, it gives a whole new meaning to the word hammered, right? And then <laughs> the men would get up in the morning, they'd be like, that is the worst fucking hangover ever. And the women would just be like, I don't know, you came in, you were drunk, you fell down, don't blame me. <laughs> Do you know, these things have a way of evening themselves out. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Uh, yeah, just, uh, I'm making a mental note never to get in an argument with you. Uh, um, the Calypso, I love the Calypso. Let's, let's, let's talk about the Calypso, Mike Reed. Uh, I was actually quite pleased about this because, as far as I'm concerned, anything that throws a light onto UKIP is fantastic because we need to shine a light because people tend to read the front... Of, they'll, they'll look at the front of a UKIP leaflet and they'll see a jolly middle-aged man quaffing ale and they don't read the back. And when you challenge them about what UKIP's policies are, they're horrified when they find out. I'll ask you three questions. Does anybody know what UKIP's official policy is on the NHS? Anybody, anyone in the panel? Do you know what? what they're going to privatise, aren't they? The policy is that well, they will privatise it at the points where it's at its most inefficient, which they w have refused to define <laughs> what the points are it's at its most inefficient. Does anybody on the panel know what their policy is on gay marriage? I reckon I could guess. Have a guess, Chris. <laughs> I reckon, I reckon they're against it. <laughs> they've promised to start the proceedings to repeal it on the day they get into yeah. Parliament. Their policy on arts and culture, anybody know what their policy on arts and culture is? They hate it. <laughs> <laughs> they what hate, is it? They, they don't know what it is. They hate it so much, they have promised to disband the Ministry of Arts and Culture, and all art has to be self-financing. I bet they like Top Gear. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, that's neither art nor culture. <laughs> 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 um, we, need, we need to wrap up. Ivan, uh, what, what's, what's next on your agenda? What are you up to now? Not immediately after this, because it's, it's a glass of wine with us, I hope. But. Yeah. I'm heading for Sierra Leone on the 10th of November. Okay. Yeah. To what purpose? Uh, to try to organize a little more efficient uh, efficiency in, the, uh, in one of the uh, Ebola centers. So uh, I, I'm not actually 
one of the key people there. I uh, I have a family now, so I don't uh, I don't I spent ten years in the field, but I don't do uh, really long missions anymore. We met your little baby earlier. She's delightful. Yeah, she came out. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. So so yeah, off off to Sierra Leone uh, and. Um, well, I just got back from South Sudan, which is also a lovely vacation spot. Um, what, what, what would you say on TripAdvisor? <laughs> well, it's the directions to the res restaurants that are more complicated because. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, you, you're making me feel slightly ashamed about. But, but thank you for doing what you well, do. Uh, so if, can, can I say actually that somebody has to work on preserving life, and somebody has to work on making it worth living, which is to say music and humor and culture. You're very so, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, this has been No Pressure to be Funny, presented by me, Kevin Day, created by Alistair Barry and Nick Revel, and featuring Barry Castagnola, Chris Coltrane, Ivan Gates, and Sabina Zera, and Johnny Orson. We're back on November the 30th. Thank you for listening. <laughs>